Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, October 9th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on this podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. That is right. We have the whole team back together in one virtual room for like the first time in what a month? Seems like it at least. Uh, anyways, okay, let's jump into it. Let's talk about what we've been doing. Uh, this last Friday was Triple Force Friday. Uh, that is when all the new Star Wars toys are released. This time it was a Triple Force Friday. It was they're releasing toys for Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker, The Mandalorian, and. Uh, that new EA video game, Jedi Fallen Order. Uh, I, they, they, I don't know. It seems like this has kind of died down in recent years. I know we talked about this on the podcast, but there was no real midnight openings anywhere near where I lived. I would have to drive all the way to Disneyland to have like a midnight opening. So I ended up going on Friday night after work and uh, with, with Kitra. We, we recorded a vlog about our adventure, but what I found was it was kind of shocking. There was not much of anything on the shelves. Actually, the shelves were mostly empty. They had been ransacked. They had been decimated. Um, there was, I don't think I saw one black series, new black series figure. I saw some stuff from like last Jedi and solo. Uh, I didn't, uh, see much of anything. There was some, some, some stores that had more than others. There, there were some Funko pops that we did, uh, see, uh, especially at like, uh, we went to, um, box lunch had a ton of Funko Pops, um, but uh, I was surprised at how little stock was on the shelves, and how there was a ton of Frozen two toys because they were also doing this like Frozen. Uh, Brad, do you know what it was called? Like Frozen Fest or Frozen something? I think it was, I think it was Frozen Fest. Yeah, and there was like shelves and shelves. Like I, I would say there was like probably. 
50 times more Frozen 2 merchandise on the shelves, and it didn't seem like anybody showed up at the stores on Friday to buy this Frozen 2 merchandise. I'm not saying that Frozen 2 isn't going to sell toys, because I'm sure it will. But I'm just – what is going – Brad, what is going on here? Because, like – did Hasbro was it Solo in Last Jedi not selling enough toys, so the the stock was pulled back this time around, or is there like what is going on? I'm I feel like that's part of it. I it did seem like Last Jedi's Force Friday event wasn't quite as exciting as Force Awakens, and a lot of that's simply because Last Jedi wasn't you know the first Star Wars movie to be released in ten years like Force Awakens was, so the excitement was. Uh, really high for the seeing the first new toys of new characters and uh, you know older characters from the original trilogy and, and that kind of thing, and Solo was even even less so. Uh, I actually didn't even go out on uh, the Force Friday event that they had for Solo, and so yeah, I think if anything, maybe they're just thinking that they just need to put some stuff out there initially to kind of tease the hardcore fans who want to grab stuff right away, and then they'll, they'll be releasing more of their stuff as time goes on. I think Hasbro even said that they've only released they only released like 30% of what their overall toy releases will be for the Rise of Skywalker and some of that's probably because of spoilers uh, but otherwise I think that they just they're probably just waiting until it gets closer to the movie and the excitement starts to build when people yeah. you know but start my, to figure my, out which toys they want. My problem isn't the selection, the limited selection. My problem was that I couldn't even find that limited selection on shelves. Like what was your experience? My experience seems like maybe it was a little bit better than yours, but I also was disappointed because so there was no stores around me that were having any of the big midnight opening events. But I called a couple of my local Walmarts uh, that are open 24 hours to see if they were going to be putting stuff on shelves at midnight. And so a couple of them were. So I, I went and, uh, I went to one and got there a little bit before midnight and no, nobody else was there when I got there. And so I talked to the assistant manager, and they were going to bring out like the the, uh, the pallet they had with, for, with a Star Wars display and this stuff. And then a, a couple showed up looking for stuff. And so the, one guy brought out this pallet, but it was literally one pallet of a display cube. And it had maybe 10 total Black Series figures. Um, it had probably... And a bunch somewhere... of those lame lightsaber toys, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tons of lame lightsabers. Um, it had maybe 20 of the Vintage Collection figures, which are the the detailed three and three fourths inch figures. Um, and I was like, is this really it? And so they went and checked and then they brought out another box and that box had the golden uh, Walmart exclusive collectible Funko pops of uh, original trilogy characters and some plushes. And that was it. And the one, then the, I was disappointed with the black series selection because there were some figures that were uh, supposed to be available on force Friday that weren't even in this box. There was no new Kylo Ren, there was no new Ray, um, and so I, I picked up the Sith Inquisitor from Jedi Fallen Order, be mostly because she comes with a super cool lightsaber accessory. And I grabbed um, crap. What was the other Black Series figure I grabbed? Oh, I, I was able, I got Ray at a different Walmart that actually had her, and so it was just yeah, it just felt really weird. So I, I grabbed some of the vintage collection figures because they're uh, I grabbed like Zori Bliss and uh, the Sith Jet Trooper and the Knights of Ren figure they released. Uh, because those are really cool, and they go with the rest of my older Star Wars toys. But otherwise, I just, especially considering all the stuff they showed for Force Friday, and I know these are the later waves, but like I would have bought more if they would have released the Janna figure early, uh, or if they would have released the the new three PO figure early. And so it just seems like they held back some of their cooler toys. 
yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what is going on there. I'm, I'm very curious because there really wasn't much of anything. The, th- the one thing I ended up buying is they had this Dio, uh, you know, the new droid from Rise of Skywalker. They had kind of a, I want to say like life-sized replica of it, which is a like a table lamp. So now that is on my bedside table and you like press his like on button and his like light turns on. So it's, it's kind of cool. I, 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 again, I recorded a video of my adventure to f- force hunting toys for force Friday. Uh, and you can watch that. I'll put the link in the show notes. Oh, and there was no Mandalorian stuff. I, I, I saw zero Mandalorian stuff at both of the Walmarts that I stopped at. And I, I had to, um, Go online to buy the carbonized version of the Mandalorian figure from from Target. My friend did find a carbonized Mandalorian figure at Target. I did at, at Disney Store. I'm not sure if you have any Disney stores around you. They had some T-shirts and stuff like that. So uh, there was some Mandalorian stuff I saw. But, yeah, I didn't even see any of the Jedi Fallen Order stuff because I think I would have bought that figure uh, just for the droid. He has, like, a new little droid. So, anyways. Um uh, yeah, I was disappointing because even the Disney stores, like, usually they come out with these, like, uh, die-cast, like, droid figures that I usually buy from my droid shelf, and they didn't have any of those new new things either. So, I don't know. And uh, nothing at Galaxy's Edge. There was no Celebration of Force Friday at Galaxy's Edge, which is weird. Uh, okay, the other thing I did this week is I went to Queen Mary's Dark Harbor. Queen Mary is this famous ship. Uh, I think it was built in the same time line of like titanic it's it's bigger than actually after because it's bigger than titanic and uh it sits in long beach and every halloween this is the 10th anniversary of this event they've been doing these haunted events kind of basically copying halloween horror nights which has been a huge success at universal studios and uh right now they have six mazes one of which is new um, with the, we got an express pass and we did all of them, uh, food and, uh, some of the attractions in under two hours. Uh, some of the mazes are two hour waits. So, so I'd definitely recommend that express pass if you can get it. Um, some of the, um, well, I'm going to bring up a couple of, uh, things I wanted to say about this is, uh, they have one ride there. They have a, you know, like in carnivals where they have the swings that like raise you up into the air and spin you around. Uh, they had that ride, but interestingly enough, it, w- it, w- it was, they were calling it the Sinister Swings. This was the swing ride that was at Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch, and they were advertising it as such. Uh, so it's kind of weird going on this. I, I did not ride it. Uh, Kitra rode it, but I imagined uh, Michael Jackson uh maybe use this ride to uh gain the trust or whatever whatever he used the ride for uh it, it's weird to be riding this ride and it's weird to be selling you know come to this event to re- ride michael jackson's you know ride it's it, it's strange um but uh it, it was fun anyways uh the uh, at as of the mazes, I think we're going to put together a video comparing all the haunted events because some people have been asking about that. Uh, but uh, just really quickly, um, the thing interesting here about Queen Mary is they have a lot more space to work with than Universal or Knott's. And because of that, uh, they can do some bigger things. Uh, they also have some of the mazes inside the ship. So it's like inside the vintage bowels of the ship and like the engine rooms in hallways so it's like really creepy because they they, while they don't have the budget of like universal studios they do have like this vintage uh like creepy location that like it's much darker 
is much harder to capture on camera because there's much more like it, you're just walking through the darkness and things jumping out at you. Uh, I would say one of the one of the uh, biggest scares of the night is there's this one point where you're in one of the mazes inside the ship and you're walking over this bridge overpass that's like I want to say like three stories above like the engine room. And you're like looking down at like the the engine room, and when you're in the middle of this bridge, suddenly the bridge bridge like like suddenly like lowers, almost like it's like breaking, and uh, it scared the crap out of both me and Ketra. It, it was awesome. Uh, they uh, they also like do some interesting creative things that go over the line of what I've seen at other haunts like Knots and and Universal. Uh, for example, the in the scream uh, the scare zones. Those actors, like, some of them had, like, these loud, like, train horns, and they would go up, like, behind people and just, like, crank them, and they're really loud, and uh, it's, it's very scary. Uh, others had, like, objects on, like, a string that they would, like, throw in people's faces, and it would come, like, within inches of their face, and then, you know, boomerang back to them. Uh, they, uh, I'm trying to think what else there was. There were some of the mazes, like, I feel like I'm surprised that this event has not gotten some lawsuits because there's some things in these mazes that seem like a lawsuit waiting to happen. Like there's this one maze that's like the circus maze with clowns that you're at one point walking through a ball pit. And uh, I almost fell. Uh, There's another maze that uh, you're walking through like a knee deep of uh, foam. And uh, one of the mazes, the clown maze actually had this point that for like 45 to 60 seconds, almost like a minute long, you're walking through this white fog that is so thick that you can't even see like three inches in front of your face. So like you don't know what's going to jump out at you. You don't know what where you're going, if you're going to hit a wall. Uh, it, it is very scary and creepy. Uh, the the bad of this event is it's less themed, less story, less budget. Uh, and I would say that the parking costs almost as much as the ticket price of the event alone. But I would recommend it. Uh, I also have a video up about this event. So if you want to check that out, the link is in the show notes. Uh, Jacob, you also went to a haunted event in Austin. Is this the one you go to every year? Yeah, there are two haunted houses or two major haunted houses in the Austin area. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh it's House of Torment, which if you live in Austin, you've seen the billboards. It's a heavily advertised one, the massively expensive one, the one that has a budget. And there's Scream Hollow, uh, which is the smaller one out in Bastrop, out in Texas Chainsaw Massacre country, uh, that I hugely prefer, but have not, have not gone to yet. But I do, I do House of Torment every year, and I like it. And this year they did a, a much-needed refresh on the themes. They changed some things up. It was very different than it was last year, which is very similar to the year before, so it needed it. Uh, but House of Torment, it's, it's still... It's in a big warehouse area divided into three haunted houses. And even though they've added like a bar and they've added a gift shop and they've added, you know, photo opportunities, the modus operandi there seems to be get people in and out as fast as possible. Whereas other haunted attractions uh, have added, you know, like for example, Scream Hollow has a giant fire pit you can gather around with chairs and picnic areas and multiple shops and a restaurant. And it's out in the middle of woods so we can like look at the sky. And once you start going to like, haunted houses where like, like create an entire experience and want to keep you there to have make an event out of your trip it's really hard to go back to places like house torment which are really well done when you're in there the effects are great the actors are good uh it's top-notch stuff inside but i feel like we go in and get out and we're done with all three houses in less than 90 minutes whereas other places we want to stay there and linger and enjoy the atmosphere so i don't know what house torment can do to improve this they have a limited amount of space you know they're, they're actually in the city 
but it's still worth it, uh, and it's still a good trip if you, if you like haunted houses. But some people have been asking me on, on in real life and on Twitter, you know, if I'm in Austin, which haunted house I go to, and if it's anything last year, Scream Hollow is still the place I recommend. But House Torment, still good. If you're going to do two haunted houses, uh, Scream Hollow in Austin, I'm uh, sorry, House Torment in Austin, is still a good time. Uh, but I'm actually planning to come back with a bigger report on haunted houses next week, Peter, because I am going to be out of town uh, Friday through Sunday, uh, which means that uh, I will not be around uh, at work on Friday because I'm going on a family trip to Dallas where my wife's family lives. And my wife and I decided to transform this into a plan we've had for a long time, which is to hit up a bunch of Dallas haunted houses. I mean, unlike Austin, Dallas has, goodness, uh, like over 20 major haunted houses because the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex is millions and millions of people uh it, it is the size of several austins all lined up alongside each other wait and wait wait are these like professional or are these like home haunts oh professional wow and uh including uh the cutting edge which is uh either depending on which record you look at either the world's longest or the country's longest haunted house it is uh apparently 55 minutes to walk through uh so what? we're doing that one yeah <laughs> it's in an old slaughterhouse in fort worth and it's going to be that's the first one we're doing on friday night we're doing that one a uh place called Dark Hour and two additional parks uh, on Saturday night. And each additional park has four or five haunted houses. So we're going to four locations, but doing, goodness, um, I think 13 separate haunts. Wow. That's a lot of haunts. So, so I'll be able to come back on, on Monday or whatever next water cooler episode is with a full report on the Dallas-Fort Worth haunted house scene. Well, very cool. We look forward to that. Uh, ben is back. He's back from Hawaii. Uh, ben, uh, well, first of all, happy birthday. Thank you. And uh, how was Hawaii? It was amazing. Uh, my wife and I went to Kauai, which is an island that we've never been to before, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, guys, Hawaii, great spot. Just throwing that out there. Hot take, Hawaii is awesome. <laughs> um, but specifically, that island is so nice because it's not like Oahu where, I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but like Waikiki Beach and all of that stuff, you know, it's very... Um, it's very touristy and there's a lot of people. And this is sort of the best of both worlds where you get all of the gorgeous vistas and, and uh, the environment and all of that stuff, the atmosphere, the food is out of this world incredible, but there aren't nearly as many people on this island. So, um, you know, there's no traffic. You don't have to deal with annoying people all the time. It's, it's very, uh, it gives you a little bit more sense of isolation, which you know, when you're trying to get away from it all on a vacation, uh, that's kind of what you're going for. So, um, yeah, we, we laid around by the pool and the beach and had, you know, a bunch of amazing food and uh, good drinks and all of that stuff, which was really great. And then we actually did a couple hikes while we were there, too. Um, the Nepali coast is uh, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And we had two different hikes where we sort of approached it from different angles. One of them is um, it's called the I think it's called the God, I'm going to butcher the name, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. But um, <laughs> it's like a two-mile trail that uh, that basically goes down into like this almost like a secret kind of beach. It, it reminded me a little bit of the beach from The Beach, the, the movie, the uh, one that's actually in Thailand. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I'm going to be posting a bunch of pictures and stuff on Instagram, so you can follow me there if you want to check out some of the stuff and maybe uh, bookmark it for your own future vacation plans, because I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, there's one thing that I did that I wanted to mention uh, specifically, and that was we took a tour, um, this place called Kipu Ranch Adventures. We, we rode a UTV, a utility task vehicle, which is basically like a... Um, 
like a go-kart with a roll cage on it and, and uh, <laughs> huge shocks and everything. And so it's it's like an ATV, but more like a like you're in a Mario Kart sort of situation. Um, and we did this whole off-road uh, adventure experience. Um, through... wait, 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 are you in your own ATV or is you and Amy in one? So we chose to we're, we're to share the same one. So she's in the passenger seat and I was driving. And but you know you can you can rent your own or whatever. But we just chose to to stick her in the same one. Um, and we got to drive around through you know all sorts of mud. We got completely covered in mud and it was amazing. Um, but like the if you've ever been to um, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the place right now. It's escaping me, but like the, the Valley where they shot uh, Jurassic park and some of that stuff. Lost. Um, yeah. Yeah. Lost uh, it. You sort of get vistas like that, but this is actually the spot where uh, Spielberg filmed some of Jurassic park, but then um, the Indiana Jones, the opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones is running uh, across the hills and down the hills and he runs out and jumps in the in the uh, river and jumps on the plane and flies away that was where that was shot so we got to drive this off-road vehicle basically right next to that hill where he was running and it kind of the entire experience kind of ruined the indiana jones ride at disneyland for me because uh <laughs> it was basically the real thing like we were able to you know that ride is like you get on a, a fake vehicle and you're like bumping along and you know going through the the crazy uh indiana jones inspired adventure and we got to like get in our own vehicle and drive through this this crazy geography and actually like through the spot where the movie was filmed so uh i don't know if it's ever going to be the same going on that ride again but um yeah anyway hawaii highly highly recommended yes i want to go back i've only been there for one set visit one of the jurassic world movies and i i, I did not get a chance to fully uh, explore it uh H.T., you were at New York Comic Con this weekend and some of last week. We talked about this briefly yesterday, but how was it? It was a lot of fun. It's a little bit isolating because I wasn't able to cover it alongside uh, other people on staff. I was just kind of running around by myself. And I think it was definitely added the it added to that factor by the fact that um, it doesn't take place entirely in one space. Uh, New York Comic Con is mostly held at the Javits Center, but there are several other events that take place at the Hammerstein Ballroom and um, an AMC theater like a couple blocks away. So you're just kind of running back and forth between like this five block radius, uh, which can be a lot, especially when it's pouring rain like it was on the first day. So that wasn't quite that fun. But as uh, after I finished um, covering the panels for Slash Film, which you can find the coverage for, um, on the website, I actually had quite a bit of fun just wandering around the show floor and um, looking at the artist alley. I bought, I think, about $100 worth of art prints. I think I went a little crazy, but I was just very excited because, uh, um, I don't know, it was just I was just excited to be done covering it for work and spend <laughs> a little money and have time to myself. So wait, I wait, wait what did you prints. buy? Well, I bought some prints for presents for my friends because okay. Christmas is coming up, so you know, that's part of it. But then uh, there's one piece that I really like that um, is made by Michael Michael Matsumoto. And uh, it's a print from Avatar The Last Airbender. And uh, it looks like an old scroll. It's designed to look like one where it shows the character Aang in his poses, uh, surrounded by the elements of earth, fire, uh, wind, and water. And uh, I'm really excited about this piece. I have far too many... 
uh, our prints now that I have to now buy frames for, but I'm excited. And um, it was overall a pretty good time. It was fun seeing uh, just the crowds of families that were around uh, and also the prominence of anime here because uh, New York Comic Con is allied, I think, with Anime USA or, or Anime NYC. So they had a lot of promotions for the new season of My Hero Academia and just a lot more just anime presence at New York Comic Con. And um, yeah, it was fun. I got to see the panels for Watchmen, which I talked about, as well as Devs, the new Alex Garland series, which I also talked about yesterday. I also ch saw the panel for uh, 20th Century Fox's uh, upcoming titles, which include The King's Man and Free Guy, which is a new Ryan Reynolds movie that I didn't really know much about, but was kind of the big winner of the first day of Comic-Con. Ryan Reynolds definitely knows how to sell to the Comic-Con crowd, and uh, people were just over the moon for that. It helped, too, that Taika Waititi, uh, Jodie Comer, and Joe Curry were in the cast, all internet favorites. And uh, there was a fun bit that Ryan Reynolds and Taika Waititi did in a, a clip that they showed where they didn't remember that they were in Green Lantern together, and that was quite fun. Uh, and, um, yeah, Watchmen was, I think, the big standout for me. I really enjoyed the pilot, which I'll talk about a little later. And I also saw the panel for M. Night Shyamalan's new Apple uh, TV Plus series, Servant, which uh, kind of actually impressed me a little bit. It's a psychological thriller series that sets in one location it's kind of a rosemary bait rosemary's baby-esque in which a couple hire on a mysterious nanny to look after their child that turns out to be a doll that they're using as sort of this grief therapy and um things start to unravel from there uh but yeah it was um it was quite wait fun. wait wait, Both... wait they hire a nanny to watch over a doll yes uh, but the woman is under the impression that this doll is real, so she is not quite mentally stable, and it becomes a very uh, intense family drama. Does uh, Jimmy Shaman know the plot of the boy? I don't know. No one asked that at the panel, but um, it's because a no one different. saw the boy. That's why. <laughs> well, enough people saw the, the boy, boy to make I a think... second one, right? Yeah, they are doing The Boy too, so apparently enough people saw it. Um, but the one twist with this one is that the, man the nanny actually plays into the um, the doll uh, being a live baby and treats it as such. So it's the husband who's kind of put on edge and not sure what is happening in his house. So that it was interesting. It, the trailer looked very much like a an M. Night Shyamalan thriller. So we'll see. I don't know how it will play out across several episodes, but because um, it seems like a premise that would be best suited towards a movie, but we'll see how that will play out um, when it comes out in Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I also saw the Snowpiercer panel, which um, was interesting. I, I really loved the Bong Joon-ho Snowpiercer film, uh, but they are pull, uh, drawing more influence from the original graphic novel, uh, that was uh, published in 1982. So it seems that they're pulling influence from both that and the film. Uh, stylistically, definitely from the film, too. So that will be uh, interesting to see once that debuts on TNT. And yeah, that's um, my New York Comic Con experience, which was my first time, uh, as well as my first time this year at San Diego Comic Con. But I think I will be returning to both. 
<laughs> I thought you were going to say it was my first time and my last time. No. <laughs> I had fun for yeah. the most part. Okay. Uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading this week? I am almost finished reading Ring by Koji Suzuki. And this is the 1991 Japanese novel that uh, inspired uh, the original Japanese film The Ring and the American uh, remake of The Ring and the many, many sequels all across the world. Uh, this entire franchise in Japan with comics and TV and this future sequel novels. It's, it's, it's so much bigger beyond in Japan than it is the United States. But it's I've been trying to read a few more horror novels this month to try to get in the mood for Halloween. And I figured, why not see where this all began? And what's really interesting about uh, Ring of the Novel is it is significantly different uh, from all the film adaptations. Uh, so it really buries the lead in the supernatural elements and doesn't really confirm that, yes, there's a haunted video, cursed videotape for a good chunk of the book. It, it really kind of leads you on as like feel like a procedural more than a horror story, which ends up uh, really working in the book's favor. And I really like this for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, it actually gives a reason why there's a cursed videotape. I feel like all the versions I've seen cut out the reason, uh, which uh, makes people like have a lot of bad jokes about, oh, why does the cursed ghost girl um, have a cursed videotape? Does she, does she make movies on the side? when the novel actually explains it in a way that I thought was really satisfying. Uh, but what's really, really interesting is that the Japanese film and the American remake, one with Naomi Watts, both gender swap the lead character, who's a journalist investigating a videotape that causes the viewer to die within seven days after watching. And this leads to a very different experience because so much of the novel is about a a not great man, a guy who is very dismissive of women, a guy who... Um, is very traditionally masculine in, in ways that are toxic, really. And his best friend, the guy who's like sort of investigating alongside him, is a genuine monster, like a genuine like um, sex offense, sex offending monster, uh, and an absolute creep, and uh, one of the most loathsome characters I've ever, I've ever encountered in recent memory. And he's absent from um, most, if not all, of the film adaptations. And it's really interesting that a book that seems to be very much about, you know. Uh, awful men uh, incurring the wrath of a uh, dead uh, female ghost loses that uh, element in all the films. And I'm not saying that the films are bad, because I, I really like quite a few of them, uh, but it's very much a book about that. And the, the, all the film adaptations have lost that in favor of just you know having a more straightforward ghost story. So if you are familiar with the films, uh, reading the original novel is different enough to be really worthwhile and has plenty of surprises. Very cool. Uh, ben, I'm, I'm assuming you hit, were reading some stuff during travel? Yes, yeah. On the plane, I read uh, The ABC Murders, which is another Agatha Christie book. I've been reading a lot of those uh, lately. And the premise for this one is a killer known only as ABC is writing letters to Hercule Poirot, one of Christie's famous literary detectives. And the letters announce a murder that the killer is about to commit before he commits it. And the way that the ABC part comes in is that the killer decides to kill somebody whose name begins with A in a city whose name begins with A and then moves on to kill a person whose name starts with B in a city that starts with B and so on. So it's uh, it's very good. I, I like the premise a lot. It's a very short, very quick read. Um, it, it's very like Sherlock Holmes, this story specifically, because it's told through the eyes of a Dr. Watson-esque character who's a longtime friend of Poirot. So you sort of get that... Um, you know, that that experience of like uh, being 
being in the room with him and not necessarily having it told from his point of view. Um, it's Christie's like 21st novel. And she, so she had been writing for about like 15 years at this point and still had many, many to go. So it's, it's sort of, uh, relatively early in her writing career, but, um, but still very sharp and, and, um, you know, it has all of the, the great sort of, uh, marks that you would expect uh, all the the boxes are are checked for um a good murder mystery like this so uh i would recommend it and like i said it's a very short book very quick read so if that um premise hooks you or, or has you interested then uh yeah i'd recommend checking it out it's called abc murders very cool okay uh this week i also we're gonna move into what we've been watching this week i saw gemini man i was lucky to see it in 120 frames per second it sounds like not many people in the U.S. are going to be able to see it the way Angley intended. This is a movie that's been in the works for over a decade. Um, it it stars Will Smith playing dual roles. He's playing himself as an old man and a clone of himself as a young man. Uh, it's an action movie. It. Uh, I I was not impressed by this. Uh, this is I, after waiting this long and hearing about this project for you know. I think ever since we, I started uh, writing and creating Slash Film, uh, I've been reporting on this project for so long. Uh, it's so disappointing. Uh, this, first of all, uh, it's the the visual effects to create young Will Smith are just like so distracting and, and bad. I don't understand why Marvel can, you know, eighty percent get that right. But everybody else has like the trouble of making it work, especially when there's so much, uh, you know, footage of Will Smith as a young man to to work off of, samples to work off of. Um, and also the 120 frames per second. This is something we saw P- Peter Jackson work with in the, the first Hobbit movie. I think they released that in 120 frames. And I, I didn't like it then. And it looked kind of like a TV movie. The quality of it makes it look like it was shot on video not that i mean everything nowadays in cinema is shot on video or most everything uh but usually it's shot in 24 frames per second that makes it look cinematic 120 frames per second makes it look so vividly real that it looks like i don't know it just looks like videotape that's it's it's hard 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 to describe it and uh because of that it's like so distracting it's it's weird because like the hand-to-hand combat in this movie because of the 120 frames per second, like it, it's almost like you can see that the stuntmen aren't fully connecting because it's so lifelike. Yet, uh, and so much of it looks so fake. But there's other parts of it. I will say, there's parts like the underwater scenes, the the uh, the motorcycle chase, the parkour stuff that somehow it looking more real made it feel more real and more dangerous. Um, but uh, I think. The story just kind of sucks, and uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is underused. I don't even know why she took this role, other than maybe to make some money. She usually is very picky on the project she chooses. Maybe she wanted to work with Ang Lee. I don't know. Uh, it, this whole thing feels like a 90s action movie. I feel like if you gave me this on VHS and I played it in a VHS player, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this, this must be from like the mid-90s. And uh, the story's just so silly. I I cannot recommend this. Uh, I'm I'm really curious coming out of this movie how the Avatar sequels are going to look because Avatar sequels I think are being shot 
in at least 120 frames per second, and that's like one of the big advancements. I will say that the 120 frames per second makes the 3D look really amazing, and I feel like we don't see many 3D movies nowadays. Uh, that that was one of the things that I felt was a little bit refreshing is seeing a 3D movie made by a filmmaker who actually wanted to make a 3D movie and made in this format that made it the 3D look good. But the story sucked, and the 120 frames per second mostly made it look weird. Uh, even when there was like, like flesh wounds on screen, like it looked like it's so. It looks like, like extra HD that you can tell that it's makeup and it's not like a real wound. Uh, Chris, you also saw this in 120 frames per second. I'm wondering what you thought. Uh, I don't care for this at all. It looks. It's basically like big screen motion smoothing and everyone hates motion smoothing on TV. So I don't know why we're supposed to accept it on the big screen. Just everything looks very soap opera E and I, I don't like this <laughs> format. I know some filmmakers want to push it. I know people think it's like the future, but it's not, it looks bad and I want it to go away. Um, beyond that, the movie itself is fine. It, it really feels like the movie only exists so Ang Lee can, can play around with this technology. Like, it, it, there's almost no thought put into the script. I mean, Will Smith is fine because he's always, you know, even if the movie's bad, he always does something interesting just because he's a really charismatic actor and he's a really likable guy. But the you know the de-aging never works for me i mean when when the younger will smith his name is junior when he's not talking he looks fine when he's basically just like walking around with like a, a completely blank face like oh that looks like young will smith but the minute he starts talking there's this there's that weird uncanny valley thing where like the the movement of his mouth never looks like a normal mouth moving and it just always looks I don't know, just wrong to me. It's just, you know, and we all know what young Will Smith looks like because he's been in, you know, the public eye for so long and it just never really works. And but like some we, of the- we, we knew what Samuel L. Jackson looked like as a young man. And I feel like in Captain Marvel, he looks fine. DH. Right. There is a way to do this. And, you know, the Irishman is coming out and I say for like one or two scenes in the Irishman that don't look quite right. It never looked bad to me. Like it looks, you know, uh, fine, but it just doesn't quite work in this. I don't know. Maybe I think it's because there's so much of it, like the Irishman and even Captain Marvel uses it sort of sparingly, like Samuel L. Jackson in Captain Marvel. He's, he's in it a good amount of time, but he's not the main character. And the Irishman Scorsese keeps cutting back and forth between like older, AKA, regular De Niro and younger De Niro. So you don't get to like stare at it for too long. Whereas in this movie, like the younger Will Smith is in in almost like every scene. So you're like constantly looking at him and it just, it never really works. And beyond that, the movie itself is just kind of dull and the act, there's a few good action scenes, but some of them border on like the ludicrous to the point where I just didn't, I like completely turned myself off. Like, there's a part where Will Smith, the, the the older Will Smith, does like the world's most impressive push-up where like a motorcycle is flying at him and he does this push-up that launches himself like off the ground like he's a, a human spring. 
and like he dodges the motorcycle and it looks so bad and i was like why how did this make this into the final film this looks so awful like i i don't know i just didn't care for it very much at all well you know what one of us saw this in 24 frames for a second which is what i think most people in the world will probably end up seeing it as ben what did you think of it in 24 frames yeah, so I saw it at a, a press screening here in Kansas City. I'm here for a, a work trip, and I was able to – so shout out to – I think his name is Charlie at Paramount, who was able to get me into a Kansas City press screening, which is strange. But And I had no idea what frame rate I was going to be seeing this, even to the point where I sat down in the theater and still didn't know. But they didn't hand me 3D glasses, so I was like, hmm, what's going on here? So I didn't even see it in 3D. Um, so I just saw it as like a quote-unquote normal movie, and I, I think it kind of – took some of the fun out of it because I feel like the whole thing about this movie is like the presentation and the format. And like you guys have said, the story is not that great. It, I mean, it, I think I'm more on Chris's side where I just think it's, it's sort of fine. Like I, you know, I had a little bit of fun with it. Um, and it, it definitely feels like a nineties throwback, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, so, you know, if you just go to see this movie, I think it's just going to be, a relatively boring experience for you. Like you, you might as well just wait and see it at home if you're just going to watch it in 24 frames per second. So I don't know if I would have gone to the press screening if I knew that that's how I was going to see it. But uh, in any case, I yeah, just thought the movie was mostly fine. I think the the thing about the young Will Smith is like, um, you know, Chris, you're talking about how you know you, you stare at him for so long and he looks good while he's not talking, but as soon as he starts talking, it starts to something starts to shift and it starts to get off a little bit. I think part of that too is the voice that Will Smith is doing. And that, I don't know. It's like, you know, you guys, Peter, I think you said, you know, we have a lot of young Will Smith reference to go through. And I know what young Will Smith sounds like. And the voice that old Will Smith did in a sound booth to try to capture his younger voice in this movie is not, what he sounded like at that age. So it, it sort of throws it off even more and makes the entire experience a little bit more um, of a disconnect for me. So I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I can't wholeheartedly recommend this at all either, but um, I don't know. It's kind of like a dad movie, you know, like I, I feel like my parents would get a kick out of it because there's not, you know, it's got some decent action and um, it doesn't really, it, it gives you what you what you think you're going to get, um, you know, it, stripping away all of the technological aspects from it. Yeah. And I, I should clarify, it's not a bad movie. It's just like so middle of the road that I don't know. It's just like it, you expect more from Ang Lee and Will Smith. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, what else have I been watching? I've been watching the new season of Survivor. It's uh, season 39 of Survivor. Survivor Island of the Idols. And uh, honestly, it's not as exciting as that uh, title of the season makes it out to be. Basically, the premise of this season, every season of Survivor, they try to make some kind of twist. Uh, this season is that two of the biggest Survivor players of all time, uh, between them I think they have three wins uh, on the game, it's Boston Rob and Sandra. They basically have their own island, which is called the Island of the Idols, and each episode one person from the cast gets to go to the island and train with them and get their wisdom and maybe get an advantage in the game if they can uh, you know, learn enough and prove their worthiness. Uh, it's out of none of the characters in the season seem 
that exciting. Uh, it is interesting. It, it does seem like it's gearing up towards a, uh, a a lot of times in Survivor. I feel like the the women, um, it, the, the men end up uh, controlling the game. There are exceptions like Lysandra. Uh, and the women f- uh, f- float along, like are able to float to the end. And then there are, have been female winners, obviously. But uh, it's not usually the women are in control of the game from the beginning. And it seems like this season really has a huge woman component. There's a huge uh, all-woman alliance going on, which I think makes, uh, f- makes it a little bit more interesting. But I think, I think the thing comes down to uh, next season is Survivor 40. And, uh, you know, I think they're putting all their, their money in that one, which they're going to have all returning players. Uh, I wish they would do an all winners edition. I honestly wish this Island of the Idols, I wish there was more idols this season because that that's what I think makes Survivor more interesting. But I, I'm watching. I enjoy Survivor. Uh, it, it's cool. It's just uh, the, the whole concept seems a little bit more gimmicky and not uh, – that exciting but maybe maybe it's just because we're in the first few episodes usually the first few episodes are the least exciting it's when you know gets down to one team and it's really a competition that it gets uh i think you know it is what survivor is uh but yeah so survivor island of the idols on abc uh brad what have you been watching i went to go see joker last week uh on opening night uh for the thursday night preview I know you guys already did your uh, big spoiler review episode. I wasn't able to be a part of because I just had the day off. Um, and I haven't listened to it yet. But I will because I'm interested to hear what everyone uh, that was on that episode thought about it. And for me, um, I was very enthralled by this movie while I was watching it. Largely thanks to Joaquin Phoenix uh, giving you know just a mesmerizing performance. Uh, this movie also has a fantastic score. And uh, visually, it looks it looks great. There's so many shots in this movie that are re- truly are are stunning uh, and and beautiful even. Um, but after the movie was over, and I started thinking about it more, and some of these thoughts even popped up while I was watching it because you kind of just go back and forth. You, it, at first, it seems like this movie has something that it's trying to say, but then that message becomes muddled because of one scene. But then one of those perspectives gets pushed forward because of, of a different scene. And it's like, oh, well, maybe this it's just a point-counterpoint kind of situation. But but in the end, when you look back at the movie, it contradicts itself so much with what it's displaying and what it does with characters, uh, including Gotham City itself and the people of Gotham City, that the movie doesn't have anything to say in the end. It's just presenting like, like, oh, man, look how complex the world is. And it's like, yeah, thanks, Todd Phillips. Uh, we didn't know that already. And so at the end, you're, you're left with a fantastic performance. But I feel like the the discourse around this movie really, from what I've heard anyway, is mostly just about how there really isn't much discourse to be had other than all the people panicking about this movie potentially inciting violence, which at the end of the day... I think that if you are paying attention to the movie, at least, um, and you're not already off your rocker, that there's not really anything that would incite violence in the way that people were worried about. Um, And that's mostly because there's no real political agenda that Joker has in this movie. And the fact that other characters don't understand that is what makes it, you know, a a big mess to begin with. So I, I think that there are some 
great qualities that this movie has, but ultimately I think it falls short of being what Todd Phillips wanted it to be. And it's, it's more so, so uh, an echo of, you know, uh, a gritty, uh, pulpy 1970s movie, uh, including, you know, the movies Scorsese made, like King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, that clearly inspire this, rather than being one that has anything poignant or provocative to actually put forth. <laughs> I, I know you haven't listened to our spoiler episode, Brad, but it seems like you have perfectly echoed uh, all three of our sentiments on this. I, I do feel like it is firing on all cylinders except for the story, except for the script. Like everything else is exceptional, but the script is just so not good. Um, Jacob, you also saw this this week. I know you talked about it on the spoiler episode. Do you have anything more to say? I'm just, I'm frustrated by this movie because it is as Brad said, really well executed nonsense. Uh, I really liked watching it. I'll probably watch it again, but goodness, what a missed opportunity on so many levels. Yeah. No, I, I do think it is worth watching. I just, yeah, it, I wish there was, I wish it was saying more. But uh, if you haven't, if you've seen this uh, movie, go check out our Monday spoiler discussion. I know we've gotten a lot of compliments about it. I am uh, proud of that episode. So please check that out. Uh, Brad, what else have you been watching? I took the time to watch In the Shadow of the Moon on Netflix. Uh, this is a movie that played at Fantastic Fest. I think Chris saw it. Um, and since I had read his uh, review when it was turned in, I was intrigued by the premise of it. And so I made sure to pay attention to when it actually arrived on Netflix. Uh, and I, I enjoyed it. It's, uh, it definitely has flares of Terminator to it. It feels like, kind of like a modern Terminator just without uh, you know, a, a robot assassin. But it does have... Uh, an assassin uh, premise to it, uh, but it, it's a, a sci-fi movie that's very grounded, uh, very gritty. It's got a premise that keeps you guessing and keeps the mystery unfolding that it captivates you, and you, you keep wanting to watch and be like, okay, what, what the hell is going on here? Um, it does feel like it kind of bites off more than it can chew, though, because by the end, that when they end up having to explain the mystery... And, you know, what's behind uh, behind it, it somewhat disappoints. And some of that, I think, is because it's a little bit underdeveloped. The, when, you, when you finally learn uh, what it is that Boyd Holbrook's character, who is a, de- a detective, uh, has been chasing this whole time, it feels like that there, there, there should be more explanation. I, I, I simultaneously wanted this movie to be um, longer, but I also would have preferred it to be shorter, if that makes sense, because I wanted them to get, I, I wanted the, the movie to have a little bit better pacing, but I also wanted to spend more time with this mystery and with the concept that it puts forth. And I don't want to spoil it because it is interesting to find it out on your own. But once you get there, I just, I wanted there to be something else. And I almost wish that, uh, and this kind of contradicts what I just said, but I almost wish it, it were a like a limited series or something like that that allowed each episode to dig into um, each chapter of this story a little bit more because the movie does essentially break down into four different parts. Um, and I just, I would have liked to explore a little bit more, but maybe in a way that was a little bit more polished and a little more, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say focused because the, it, it's, it does hone in on Boyd Holbrook's character and what's happening with him as the, the crux of the story. But I feel like what's there is, is, Bigger. And I don't think the movie or the um, itself needs to be bigger in the way that like the Terminator franchise has become. 
but I just I I think I wanted a little bit more uh, meat from this this meal, as it were. Okay, um, Jacob, what have you been watching? I watched the first episode of a new Netflix series called Marianne. It's an eight episode or maybe ten episode uh, French uh, horror series about a horror writer who returns to her hometown after her uh, creation has seemingly come to life, or maybe uh, whatever, uh, or maybe it was all real to begin with. And it's, I've only seen the first episode, but it's a very, very creepy hour of TV. Uh, and I enjoyed it a great deal. And it's well acted, it's tense. It kind of has, um, if Hereditary was on the CW kind of vibe, which I actually mean is a, it's a full-fledged compliment. I, I really, really like it. And the one thing I will recommend is that if you do watch it, it, it defaulted to the dub the English language dub when I put it on. So make sure you go in and turn on the French language with subtitles. It's so much better in every possible way. Uh, Chris, I know you've been watching this too. Did you finish the whole season yet? I did. I actually finished it the other day and I forgot to put it on my list here. But yes, I also watched it and I I really liked it. It doesn't quite stick the landing. I'm not going to give anything away. I'm just going to say it doesn't quite stick the landing. But most of the episodes are really surprisingly creepy especially for uh, like a tv show and um I-, I enjoyed it for the most part and i uh I, uh the lead actress her name i don't have her name in front of me at the, at the moment but she's she's very good she was also in call me by your name um so i i hope i like i hope this sort of like turns her into a bigger star and gets her into more things because she is a pretty good lead she does a great job with handling a lot of stuff that's going on in this series so if you like creepy stuff and you're in the mood for something creepy this halloween season you should definitely check this out i have to say that uh marianne also has one of the creepiest old ladies to to grace the screen in recent years it she's very creepy looking and and also just very uh unsettling so that's just uh, another thing to if you if you want to see to see another creepy old lady just terrorize you and all the characters. Definitely check it out. Yeah, for me, the, the tone, maybe better than Hereditary meets the CW, is it's what American Horror Story wants to be. It's kind of the tone I get from it. So if this sounds appealing to you, uh, you should definitely check out streaming now on Netflix. It's Marianne. I also watched Final Prayer, which is known as The Borderlands in other areas of the world. It is a uh, UK found footage horror movie from, the, from 2013. And it checks a lot of my boxes. It's about a uh, Vatican uh, team sent to a church out in the wilderness of the UK to investigate a miracle and find out that it's not a miracle. It's something far worse, and it's all caught on camera. And it's very much a slow burn. It takes a while to get going, like a lot of these found footage movies do. Uh, but I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the tone. I enjoyed the truly kind of bonkers final 20 minutes and an ending that... Uh, Take, it took a moment for me to realize what was going on, and when I did, I was really horrified by it, and I really, really uh, enjoyed it. So if you want a good Halloween watch, that is Final Prayer or The Borderlands in other areas. And that is available for rental on Amazon, where I watched it, for three ninety nine. And if you like ghost hunting, d- demon possession, Vatican, Catholic paranormal uh found footage horror movies which i do very much is my favorite <laughs> niche sub genre uh you should definitely check out uh, final prayer uh a little double feature i did that ended up being kind of telling in a weird way was uh what lies beneath and the thomas crown affair uh the first came out in two year 2000 second was 1999 and they both feel at one with another because they're it's like it's the last time 
in the last era where middle-aged movie stars were the draw of like these major releases. I mean, What Lies Beneath is Robert Zemeckis thriller about a woman who believes her house may be haunted. Uh, it's Michelle Pfeiffer, a, a name above the title leading role, I think, for the last time, and Harrison Ford. And they're both in their, I think they're 40s, late 40s, early 50s in this movie. And they're both spectacular, and they both have that movie star quality. And the script, which is written by Clark Gregg, a.k.a. Agent Coulson, of all people, it's solid, dependable, you know, um, lifetime supernatural fluff. But these two movie stars anchor it. And the movie's built around, you know, the magnetism of Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford being on screen together, being movie stars. And Thomas Crown Affair, which is John McTiernan's remake of the Steve McQueen movie, is similarly built between, you know, here is Pierce Brosnan and Ray, Ray Russo, also both in their 40s at the time, you know, being movie stars. You know, let's watch these movie stars be slick on the screen. And neither movie is as good as their leads. They're both made of, you know, pretty familiar parts. Uh, but this is, you know, right before, you know, superhero movies started taking off, right before Hollywood fundamentally shifted toward, you know, directors being a bigger draw than, than movie stars. And to watch these movies that are built firmly around these leading men and leading women is a reminder of, like, the last gasp of, you know, very traditional Hollywood filmmaking. I think they're both actually good movies. I like revisiting them. And uh, Thomas Crown Affair, I rented uh, on, on uh, iTunes, and What Lies Beneath is streaming on Hulu. And they're both worth revisiting, especially What Lies Beneath for the Halloween season. It's nice and spooky. So I'm curious, uh, has anyone seen these movies recently? Have they, have they held up for anybody else? Uh, I haven't seen What Lies Beneath in years, but I hated it when it came out. So <laughs> I have no desire to ever revisit it. It's um, wait, what, what, wanna... wasn't that the movie that was that Zemeckis shot in between shooting Castaway? Yeah, right. Because uh, Tom Hanks had to lose weight, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Rush out made his little Hitchcock ghost movie. Yeah, I'm with Chris. I remember seeing it and also hating it as well. That's insane to me. I think it's a good. It's a totally good movie. No, <laughs> it seemed it seemed re- really predictable and just really hokey to me. Oh, okay. Ben and HT, surely one of you like what lies beneath. I remember liking it at the time, but I have not thought about it, you know, remotely since then. I'm I'm still sitting here blown away at the fact that Clark Gregg wrote it. When you said that, I my jaw dropped. So this is the first time ever hearing of that. I don't think I've actually ever seen What Lies Beneath, so I can't help you, Jacob. I'm sorry. Okay, I need, I need HT and Ben to watch What Lies Beneath on Hulu <laughs> to come to my defense next week. Peter, how about you? Come on. You, surely you like What Lies Beneath. Uh, you know, I was a huge Zemeckis fan. I, I've, I've not seen this movie in so long, but, you know, my favorite movie of all time is Back to the Future. Uh, I loved Castaway. I loved uh, Zemeckis of that time before he got sucked into the void of technology. Um, and I remember enjoying kind of uh what he did with what lies beneath but i have not seen it in over 10 years so i don't okay it's very important to me that everybody rewatch this movie except for chris and brad so next <laughs> what, water is this the movie that's gonna break apart teen slash film <laughs> i will I, i'm i'm making it that movie because there's no reason to hate a movie as innocently um enjoyable as what lies beneath yeah. <laughs> okay. Thomas Crown uh, Affair is pretty good, though, Jacob. Yeah, and it has a crazy Bill Conti score, which I did not remember until I watched it. Like, like crazy electric guitars, like feel so cheesy and good at the same time. Thomas Crown Affair is good, and um, uh, Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo both very naked in it. If that is your thing. Uh, also, last gasp of John, John McTiernan, you know, director of Die Hard, Predator, Hunt for October, before he made Basic his worst movie, then with the prison. So, <laughs> very interesting time capsule uh, for that as well. Uh, moving on, uh, I finally started season two of Succession after putting it off for far too long. And guys, 
season two of Succession is so good. Uh, season one got better as it went along, and season two just picks up at, at the high quality mark and just runs with it. Uh, I think one of the most vital shows on TV. It is so funny and so dark, and it really puts a human face on so much. Uh, it puts a human face on monsters. It never apologizes for its one percent of your main characters being totally awful pieces of garbage, but it also asks you to you know recognize them as human beings, which is a really tricky balance, and it pulls it off so well. In fact, I think episode four of season two may be my favorite episode of Succession. It is just a perfect hour of TV. I was impressed by every part of it. So if you've been putting off Succession season two like I have for some damn reason, oh man, this show is your. It's my, it, it was my new obsession when I first watched season one, and my new obsession all over again. So that's Succession streaming now on your on the HBO app of your choice. Cool. Ben, have you had any time to watch anything with your trip to Hawaii? Uh, well, kind of barely. Um, on the plane is the only time that I have I was able to watch anything. So I watched the Lego Movie 2, the second part, uh, and I enjoy this movie. I, I caught up with it because I, I missed it when it was in theaters. Um, I think earlier this year it came out in like February. So um, I really, really love the first movie. I don't think this one is quite as good, but it's it's definitely in the same ballpark and it has the same heart and humor, especially humor that you would expect from a Lord and Miller project. They wrote this movie, but didn't direct this one. And um, I'm so glad to hear Ben say this because I feel like so many people were unjustly disappointed by this movie. And I think that it's still it's it, you're right that it's not quite as good as the first one, but it's it, it's exactly what it's supposed to be as a Lego movie sequel. And I think it's 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 pretty damn good. Yeah. And Tiffany Haddish is in this as like, um, I guess, the antagonist, like one one of the main antagonists. And a lot of times when you know this this i guess is probably on the on the tail end of tiffany haddish's like uh meteoric rise post uh girls trip um and a lot of times in animated movies like this when they when they throw somebody in like that i just sort of consider it like stunt casting like oh great you know this person who's like hot at the moment you know they throw this person in and and it's just like um I don't know. It, it feels cheap a lot of times, but she did a tremendous job in that role. I thought it was perfect uh, for her. And um, yeah, I, I thought the story was like really sweet and really well done. And especially, you know, having watched some some other animated movies that I won't uh, mention right now because <laughs> I can't remember. I can't even remember their names. But just coming off of, um, you know, a, a string of some disappointed, uh, disappointing animated stuff to see a movie like this that's so well constructed and so consistently funny all the way throughout um, was a really enjoyable experience. So that's the Lego movie too, the second part. I watched it on a plane uh, and I would recommend that you maybe not watch it on a plane, but check it out if you skip this one for some reason. And then uh, finally I watched Fury, which is the 2019 Vietnamese martial arts movie that I think HT talked about last week or maybe a couple weeks ago on the podcast. Um, and I had a lot of fun with this movie. I think, um, I don't remember exactly what your take on on, on it was, HT, but uh, for me, it, this movie is basically like uh, it's taken, but from a with a, a female lead instead of uh, Liam Neeson, <laughs> and it's uh, I, I think the female lead aspect of it makes all of the parts in between the action sequences um, mean a little bit more because there are like genuine emotions happening in those moments instead of just you know, gruff growling and, you know, people trying to out badass each other for the entire movie. And the action scenes are, are comparable to anything in Taken. And I think, you know, exceptionally well done from a, a martial arts perspective. And, and, you know, if you're into that type of cinema, you're going to 
find a lot to like here when with the fight scenes and stuff. But I, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the non-fight scenes in this movie as well. So that's Fury, and it's on Netflix right now. Okay. Um, Chris, what have you been watching this week? Uh, I watched a screener for a film called Haunt. Um, it was, I think it got a limited theatrical release, and it's coming to net uh sorry shutter this month on uh 10 24 and i really liked it um i think jacob actually talked about this on a previous episode and uh it it's it's set in the the, the budding new horror subgenre of haunted attractions that really are haunted or dangerous if you will and so it's about you know a group of of college students uh on halloween they go to a haunted house, you know, not like a quote unquote real haunted house, but you know, one of the one that's run by people. And it turns out the people running the haunted house are crazy murderers. And, uh, you know, that plot is simple and there's a million ways you can do that sort of story. But I really liked the way this this film handled it. Um, there's nothing like groundbreaking here, but it has a really cool Halloween atmosphere that I really appreciate. Like there are some movies that are set on Halloween that never really nail like the, the Halloween vibe that, you know, fall vibe. They just look like they were shot in the middle of summer. And this, this film manages to really get the Halloween mood, right. And um, a lot of times when movies like this come out and they have like a young cast of unknown actors, all the unknown actors are kind of terrible and insufferable and you can't wait for them to die. But I actually liked the cast here. I thought they were all pretty likable characters and you actually care about them. And there's a surprisingly, there's a surprising large amount of like gore, which I was not expecting, like really impressive, practical makeup effects gore. So, you know, if you're in the mood for some sort of Halloween uh, treat this season, seek out haunt. Um, you know, if you have shutter, get shutter. It's, it's coming 1024. It'll be streaming there. If you don't want to wait, I did rent it, I think, through iTunes. So it's out there on your other VOD and rental services. And as Chris said, it is, it is very good, and I recommend it, too. Okay. Uh, HT, while you were at New York Comic Con, uh, what did you see? I saw the pilot for Watchmen, uh, which I really enjoyed. And I they did embargo reviews for it, so I'll give brief impressions uh, that – Apparently, everyone was giving on Twitter anyway, so I'm just going to tell you what I thought and what was happening uh, vaguely in this pilot. Um, so this pilot takes place 34 years after the events of the original Watchmen comic that was written by Alan Moore and David Gibbons. One interesting thing during the panel, actually, was that Damon Lindelof, who created and developed this show, apparently couldn't say Alan Moore's name uh, for... A good portion of the panel um, they didn't start saying his name until David Gibbons came on gave his blessings to the show and started just talking about his old friend Alan so I think that was just a really funny thing wait wait but, are you saying he avoided saying it like yeah at one point he said uh, the author of this comic who I can't talk about so that huh. was yeah that I wonder if that's a legal thing that makes sense Alan Moore has been very very contentious about his name being used in relation to anything based on his work so that makes sense (laughs) and uh he definitely he does not like giving his um blessing to any projects about his pro uh any projects based on his uh writing so it it was in line with that but um i really enjoyed the watchman pilot which i talked about a little bit on last yesterday's episode uh in that it 
shares a lot of the DNA with the pilot of The Leftovers. I was really happy that I actually watched The Leftovers before this because it is similar in how it sets up this world after some sort of cataclysmic event has happened. And it's a world that has been thoroughly changed and affected by this event um, and follows these sprawling, rich uh, cast of characters as mysterious elements are kind of seeded throughout. Um, and it has that sort of grounded reality to it that The Leftovers does. Um, but it also has shared elements like the arrival or the rise of sort of cult-like groups. In this case, a group called the Seventh Cavalry, who are inspired by Rorschach and wear Rorschach masks. So it's a really great pilot. And um, the score by Atticus uh, Ross and Trent Reznor is really phenomenal as well and really fits with that sort of edgy uh, electric vibe to it. Um, it's Regina King is just fantastic as a former detective who moonlights as a vigilante that is in league with the police in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the events start taking place and things start to um, spiral when the 7th Cavalry kind of come into contact with the police. So it's, it's really good. Um, there are a lot of Easter eggs planted throughout, um, as that are that allude to the original comic uh, a lot, especially dealing with the squid, which I was very happy to find out because one of the things that I was uh, disappointed in with Zack Snyder's film was the lack of a giant squid. And in this case, the squid is very prominent. Um, and um, it's also really good for people who don't know anything going into Watchmen because, as I said before, it kind of introduces this world after some mysterious event um, and the, the central mystery starts to unfold gradually but even in the first pilot you don't you aren't entirely sure what is happening or what is going to happen uh, which is really intriguing and compelling so it is a it's a kind of new step forward for both fans and non-fans alike I would say and Watchmen is on HBO what like this weekend next weekend it is on HBO uh, this October 20th I think it's, yeah the end yeah. of the month yeah oh, crazy I'm I'm so excited for this. Okay, so uh, what else have you been watching, HD? I finally got to see Parasite, and I've been a buzz about this movie ever since yes. it premiered at Cannes. And uh, Ben has just been hyping it up for uh, months now, and I have to say, I loved it. My God, it's definitely my favorite movie of the year. And I will try not to go, I won't go into spoilers for this because this is a movie, like Ben said, that you need to go into without knowing, knowing as little as possible. Um, but my God, this is such a brilliantly warped and confidently staged social satire that is as blackly comic and savage as any Bong Joon-ho movie and feels really like culmination of all, all of his works. And I absolutely adored it. I was just in a daze after I watched it. Um, I can't, I have to say that there's, it's almost incomparable. Uh, I can't really say that there are um, any other movies like Parasite out right now or out in recent years, just because it does something so spectacular and so confidently, um, with its message of just social stratification and class anxiety. And I just absolutely adore how Bong Joon-ho is able to walk that tonal high wire 
with this movie and with all of his past movies, but very much so with Parasite, it feels like it is a mass. He's just a master at his craft. And um, I was trying not to read too many things going into Parasite before this, but I couldn't help but read the Vulture profile, which I highly recommend, um, came out this week. And uh, I learned from that that Bong Joon-ho storyboards meticulously all of his films, um, every shot, and he has a vision for each shot before he goes into filming. And that made so much sense to me going into Parasite because it is such a a visual just feast and everything is so meticulous and everything is so confident in how it tells it's, it really is just like expert visual storytelling. And uh, I really loved it. And um, I, I think that it is honestly, yeah, a, a masterpiece from, from uh, Bong Joon-ho that I can't wait to see again and unpack even further because there are just so many layers to this film visually and narratively and thematically. Um, and it is, yes, uh, very on the nose in its in its um, visual metaphors, but I think it just works so so entirely well. This is going to be our film of the year when we do all the scores at the end. This, I'm gonna, I'm calling it now. Hmm. I'm so excited to see this, and I'm I'm glad that uh, I just looked. AMC does this ha- have have this as their one of their like, artisan films, which is I guess one of their like indie films that they're going to be showing so I'm, I'm going to get to use my amca list to see this so uh i'm excited uh okay let's move into what we've been eating speaking of amc when i was at amc theaters this week to rewatch joker i saw that they had some special halloween flavors on their coke freestyle machines uh one of which is this fanta strawberry zombie fusion uh, I had the Zero, Fanta Zero version of it. Uh, it doesn't really say what the flavors of this is. Mine tasted like strawberry Pez as a soda, which was kind of enjoyable. Not like amazing or anything. Uh, Brad, I, I think you also tried one of these flavors too, right? Yeah, I did. I tried the uh, Fanta Bewitched Orange Elixir. Um, and I, I, I wasn't uh, too sure what the flavors are. Obviously, it's Fanta Orange, and I think it's probably mixed with lemonade and maybe like peach Sprite, so, some kind of uh, <laughs> so, some kind of Sprite. I feel like they also mixed in with the the orange Fanta, and uh, it was okay. I, I didn't think it was fantastic, but I also find that the um, the fruit flavored sodas in Coke Freestyle machines are underwhelming for. Uh, the reason that I've brought up on here a couple times, which is that the freestyle machines make flavors uh, not as good because they get jumbled together because of the, the different flavored syrups that run through the system. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I would get this again. I wish with these kind of flavor things that they would have the option to show you what the actual flavor is. Because it's like it presents you with this thing like strawberry zombie fusion. And it's like, what even is that? Like, what if it's like strawberry and like orange and i don't like citrus flavor do you know what i mean like to tell me what kind of flavor it is even if you go to galaxy's edge it tells you what the blue milk tastes like um but okay brad what else have you been eating this week uh nothing uh on the food side actually it's been a soft drink heavy week uh because i was able to get my hands on some new flavors of stuff um, there's a new cinnamon Coca-Cola that's out, uh, basically for the, the holiday season and it's pretty good. The, the cinnamon adds a nice, uh, spice to it. You know, I, I guess it's, it's not overwhelming. My, 
My girlfriend actually felt like that the cinnamon was too much and that it didn't really taste like uh, Coke anymore, but more of like some kind of a, of a cinnamon soda. I actually think it just it it just feels like there's a little bit of cinnamon uh, in the Coke, and it, it doesn't do uh, much for me. I think it's it's fine, but it's it's not anything that where I was like, oh, this is it's extremely different from Coca-Cola and adds, adds so much flavor to it. But it's it's fine, I guess, you know, if you're looking to change things up a little bit. I bet you it would be a good to make like a, a Coke float with this, uh, with cinnamon Coca-Cola. Oh, Just yeah. put, some, put some ice cream in it. I haven't tried that yet, but I, I do want to. Now, now that uh, they're doing like spicy flavors, why have they not made a Coke, a uh, pumpkin spice Coke? Oh, geez. Probably because they don't want everyone to throw up in their mouth. <laughs> I'd try it. Uh, speaking of spice, though, there there is a winter spiced cranberry Sprite that is also out for the holidays. Uh, and this I was not too impressed with. It uh, tastes more like watered down cranberry uh, juice mixed with Sprite. Um, and I, I think that's just because of the, the spiced part of it. I, I don't really know like what, what that's about, but I, I prefer... Other cranberry flavored sodas. I um, I, my my favorite one still was, uh, Mountain Dew did a a holiday. Uh, I think it was a holiday um Dew. I don't know if it was last year or the year before, where it was a, a cranberry, uh, flavored like citrus Mountain Dew they made, and that was delicious. But uh, this one I was I was disappointed in. It was not uh not a pleasing flavor, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and speaking of Mountain Dew, there is a new Mountain Dew that is available exclusively at Dollar General stores. It's called Maui Burst, uh, and it is a pineapple-flavored Mountain Dew. And it's uh, it's pretty good. I'm, I Pineapple, um, or, or artificial pineapple, I guess, anyway, is one of my favorite fruit flavors when it comes to things like candy and soda. Uh, I really like uh, both the Crush and Fanta flavors that, that are pineapple. Uh, and this one is pretty good, but it's not quite as good as as those two that I just mentioned. It's I, I'm not sure if the maybe Mountain Dew uh, formula doesn't mix as well with whatever pineapple flavor they have. Um, so it's it's pretty good, but it's it doesn't have quite as good of a pineapple flavor. It feels more of like a, a generically tropical uh, sort of flavor, and so that's but it's it's not bad. You know, it's it's not that I wouldn't drink it again. It's just not one of my favorite uh, alternate Mountain Dew flavors. Okay. I think that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashHome.com. You can find uh, this podcast, Slash Home Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashHome.com. And please rate, this, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Uh, yes, Jacob? We're all together again. Uh, if yeah. we that kill was, the joke that, book, that was... does it come back to kill us as a young girl <laughs> that was drowned in a well? Is that what happens? If the book doesn't, it, doesn't, it sounds like Jacob might, because the way he said we're all together <laughs> Wait, again was pretty creepy. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm going to put a rule on this. You can only read the joke book in October if there's a Halloween section. Whoa. Oh, give me a second. or like haunted or like you know something in the theme of horror like it it doesn't work if 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 you don't have that section jacob it's not happening so hmm Hmm. this is actually how the joker becomes the joker in joker (laughs) i'll be shocked his favorite joke book i'll be shocked if louis a safian did not come up with a 
Well, the Grand Tour Book of Insult, Offense, and Infrontery, Sharp Retorts, Reposts, Cost Equips, and Implant Put Down by Louis A. Safian does not have a dedicated Halloween section. However, Peter, it does have a section for people like you who try to impose rules on the world. That section, <laughs> and that section is Losers. What? Uh, what? Uh, so, Peter, no one is your equal at hitting the nail squarely on the thumb. I... I don't even understand. No one is <laughs> no one is your equal at hitting the nail squarely on the thumb. But what if I'm really like strong and I could actually hit the nail on the th- or I don't know. Okay. HT what? HT she even has to call an interior decorator to change a typewriter ribbon. Ah, when when was this it. book written? Like typewriter <laughs> rib- ribbing? Ben, he's back from Hawaii. He's standing on his own two feet. His car has been repossessed. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Brad, if he ever sold lighting fixtures, the sun wouldn't set. Uh, um, okay. If Brad ever sold lighting fixtures, <laughs> the sun wouldn't set. Oh, I see. Yeah. Chris. I, I want to see Jacob, like the Joker, go to like an open mic and like start reading these jokes and see. And, and, and then when nobody laughs, him repeat the joke over until people laugh. Chris. Chris. <laughs> not only has he had a hard row to hoe, he hasn't even got a hoe. Wow. Uh, uh, ho. <laughs> <laughs>